Amen. Please turn to Revelation chapter 16. And tonight we're just going to deal with verses 17 through 21. Uh, by doing that, I think we'll get a good understanding of the structure of the book. We're going to be going through a lot of scriptures tonight. So you'll want to try to keep up. Or if it's better for you just to sit and listen to the scriptures as they're read, feel free to do that too. But I will give you the, the scripture passages that I'll be going to. Uh, some of them are going to be rather lengthy, but there's a purpose for it. I hope that you'll see what it is. So we're in the midst of what we call the seventh bowl. And we're ready to start the seventh bowl, I should say. And uh, there's seven bowls, each of them full of the wrath of God. And they're being poured out on the earth. They're being poured out on the lost. But we should think of it like this. Just like uh, the Egyptian plagues. Remember the plagues of Egypt. The ten plagues. They were the Egyptians were struck by them in temporal judgment. But the Israelites were safe. Darkness over Egypt. The Israelites had light. Boils over the Egyptians. Not upon uh, the Israelites. Um, hail and, and lightning and thunder on Egypt. Not a problem in Goshen where Israel was. And that's a picture. Those were temporal judgments. That picture is now being expanded into what God's doing. God's wrath is being poured on the lost, and yet his protection is for the church. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen the church, and we'll see it again, the, chur the church being persecuted, martyrs being created, the world destroying what it hates. But um, now we're at the section of Revelation where God is destroying the destroyers. So that's what it's about. Uh, by way of review, let's look and see what the sixth angel did back in 1612. We'll just read it by way of review. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw it coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Those, those are the three unholy fake trinity, by the way. The fake trinity. Okay. I saw coming out of their mouth unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. And there's a purpose. Why are they going over to the king? Why is this vision happening? To assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then the warning is given. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. That's a promise and a threat. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. It's a promise to us. And how many times does the Bible say that about a thief? And uh, that he comes as a thief. Which simply means he comes at an unexpected time. Well, you're not really going to be able to figure it out. You're not going to say, oh, wow. I guess he's coming in about two weeks. Look at this. You know, I, I don't think that's really the right way to look at it. But some do. Some would say, no, there's going to be this. Right at the very end, we're going to see it all taking place. I, I'm not so sure. I've not been convinced of that myself. I still rather believe that what we're looking at is something that, that takes us by surprise, takes them by surprise. You know? So it's a promise and a threat. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blesses the one who stays awake. And how many times are we exhorted towards that in the scriptures? To stay awake. And, of course, we know that um, 
There's the five, vir the five foolish virgins, the five wise virgins. We see these kind of things throughout scripture. Stay awake, keeping his garments on, so we'd be ready, that he may not go about naked and seen exposed. And they assembled them at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And we just left it there, but uh, we're going to actually see the utter destruction of Armageddon uh, as we get into the later chapters here. Now the seventh bowl. The seventh bowl is going to expand out into the rest of, of uh, this chapter. Actually all the way to seven, chapter 17 into chapter 21. The seventh bowl can be seen uh, throughout this entire scrape. So we get a real pic little picture of it tonight. And then we're going to see an expanded view of it. We're going, to see, uh, who, we're going to see the great prostitute. We're going to see um, the things that are, that are going on. We'll, and it'll be an expansion of what we're looking at tonight. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. That's why that's the name of the sermon, Joe. It is done. Because <laughs> it is done. It's done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake as there has never been since man was on the earth. We're going to see uh, in Egypt, there's a great earthquake like has never happened in Egypt before. Okay, well, this is one that's never happened on the earth before. Okay, and um, so great was that earthquake. The city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. And great hail. Now this is really kind of striking. After all of that, you say, well, there's the end. And all of a sudden, great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality uh, and with the wine of sexual immorality. So now you can see we, we actually went to the very end. Then all of a sudden we switch gears just a little bit, and now we see the big expansion that comes next. The next time we see the end, it'll really be the end. That'll be it, okay? There won't be any more of uh, just small, compact statements. It'll be the big one. It'll be the, one, the big and final statement. But the, what makes Revelation kind of confusing to all of us is the cyclical nature of it. And if you try to read it linear, I, well, it, it just can't be done, really, with any kind of coherence. So people try. But uh, they have to really deny that it is done means it is done. They have to deny that. To take it literally and have to deny what it literally says. But the cyclical nature of it makes it so that we can deal with it that way. So, you know, although it's the end, we're going to go back over the history and a full account of the end regarding Babylon in particular. And we're going to see it from the perspective of Babylon and the, those that destroy Babylon. 
and the assembly to Armageddon. Okay, and this is going to be expanded as we go. So, this type of literature is not even unknown to us, though, really, if you think about it. An illustration might help you think this through. You've probably seen movies or read books where in chapter one, it's the end of the book. Or it's or right at the very beginning of the movie, it's the end of the movie. And now the rest of the movie shows you how you got there and all the things that led up to it and all the things that were happening. And that's kind of an illustration of, of what's happening here in the book of Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. It's, not, it's a whole different genre than history or narrative. And uh, it often takes this kind of a form, you know. So in this case, the end comes early with the sixth seal. Or, or, or with the, yeah, we've seen it in the sixth seal, we saw the end come. And then there was the seventh seal. And then there was a seventh trumpet where the end came. But we get more information about all that took place when we're in chapters 12 through 14 with the dragon and the woman and the church persecution and the unholy trinity of the two beasts and the false prophet. And that all ends with the earth being reaped, which is, of course, the coming of Christ. Look at chapter 14. Here's another place besides the trumpets and the seals and the bowls where the end comes. Chapter 14, verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Or you could actually say the last elect person has finally come. You could say that. It's fully right. So he's, he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped, reaped of God's people. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. These are the grapes of wrath that are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And then we go on, chapter 15, Seven angels, seven plagues. Um, chapter 16, seven bowls full of God's wrath. So that's how we got to where we are, you know. And it is taken from the motif of, of the limited judgments on Egypt and now the judgments on the entire world. Okay. So I'm going to be looking at a lot of places tonight. Let me just compare 17.1, which I read for you, with uh, 21.9. Okay, this is kind of the bookends of what we're going into next. Okay, 17.1, 21.9, the bookends, and then everything in between. 17.1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters. So there's a woman, a great prostitute. She's on the many waters, ruling over people, Dealing with people. 
But then look at 21.9. Keep your finger in there. And Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, one of the seven last plagues, spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And there's the contrast of the two women that we see. The great prostitute, and we're going to see her destruction and her end. And she even gets destroyed by her own lovers. You know, those that, that uh, love her turn against her and destroy her. And she's contrasted with the pure bride of Christ. And we're going to see that Babylon is the great prostitute. And people try to figure out what Babylon is. Let me give you my best guess, and then we'll move on with the exposition of this. But this, the reason I should give it here is because verse 19 of chapter 16, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath. Babylon becomes very important from this point on and will into 17, 18, 19. Okay, so who is Babylon? In, you don't need to turn to these scriptures, but in 11.8, it talks about the city. And it doesn't say Babylon. It says Sodom and Egypt. And it's talking about Jerusalem, and we know that, because it's where our Lord was crucified. That's in 11.8. So that's not Babylon, but there we see Jerusalem, Okay. And uh, there's no reason to to take it for anything other than that, because we're explicitly told that's where our Lord was crucified. So that one's pretty easy. That's 11.8. But that's not Babylon. And then Rome is alluded to as being Babylon in 17.9. Look what it says. You're right there. You should be right there. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, we won't go into the rest of that until we get to the thing. The thing. But that has uh, led uh, people for, for many, many times, Rome is very famously the city on seven hills. Okay. So you say, well, okay, Babylon is Rome. Well, yeah, it is, but is that all that it is? I, I don't think so. I think my personal opinion is the Babylon we see in Revelation is a composite of all the earthly societies of today that God is going to destroy. The things that are going to be destroyed. Is it society as a whole? Society as a whole. It's the city of man. Is it political? Absolutely, it's political. And it will be destroyed. Is it economic? Yeah, sometimes we destroy ourselves economically, but God's going to destroy it economically, absolutely. Uh, is it military? It certainly is. They gather together in, at Armageddon to fight, figuratively speaking, the Lord God. It's military. All the military might will be destroyed. Is it religious? It's false religion. I think sometimes it's uh, many of our friends have, and even the reformers had a tendency uh, to call Babylon the Roman Catholic Church. Is it the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah. And I think it's every false religion. Every false religion. Not just the Roman Catholic Church. Is it social society? You know as well as I do, just uh, from looking around here in America, there's a whole lot of social society that deserves to be destroyed. Blatantly, 
blatantly ungodly, you know, glorying in their shame. Okay, so yeah, we see this. It's all these things. It's yes, 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 yes. It's the kingdom of man as opposed to the kingdom of God. That's what Babylon is, I believe. And if we try to pin it down to, to one thing, I think we miss some of the picture. It's all these things and called the great prostitute. And the church in heaven is the great pure bride of Christ. And the woman of chapter 12 is the church on earth. And of course we see the dragon fighting against her. So two women are pictured. One who fights against God, one who serves God. One that's judged by God, one that's vindicated by God. And so I think that really helps us to see what Babylon is. And uh, that we'll see. Okay, so I'll go on. There's other things I can say about that. But I think I'll wait until we get into chapter 17 more to say that. So let's go back to 16 now. The seventh angel, uh, chapter 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Okay, or into the sky. Into the air, into the sky. It's sometimes, and the air is sometimes referred to as, as Satan's evil domain. Ephesians 2.2, 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Um, and we've seen this before. Signs of the Lord in the sky. We continue on. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there's never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And we've seen this before, too. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. 8.5 Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. That was the seventh seal. Okay. And then we see it again in the seventh trumpet. 11.19 Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and heavy hail. Well, that's a little addition to something, isn't it? Okay, that, that was added, the hail. Seventh seal reads almost exactly the same. Seventh trumpet reads almost exactly the same. And the seventh bowl of God's wrath reads almost exactly the same. It's very obvious we see I have a cycle here. We have a cycle that's repeating. Okay, it, it even tells us that as we come to the end of each part. So, now let's deal with this particular bowl, the seventh bowl. Thunder, lightning, an earthquake. The context is obviously God's power and God's judgment. I remember, Becky would remember this too. We visited the pastor friends of ours that live in the panhandle of Texas. That's a rough place to live in the Panhandle of Texas. I didn't realize how rough it was until we visited there. And so he's got this nice truck. And um, I'm looking at his truck. And I'm not kidding, there were more than 100 potholes in the thing, deep potholes. Some of them an inch thick that had just pounded into the truck from every direction. And I said, what in the world happened? He said, well, we don't have a garage. And and there was a, a heavy hailstorm. There were golf ball-sized hail. And it just pummeled my truck. And he says, um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> well, can't, you can't fix it. How are you going to, what are you going to do? Well, 
long story short, he went to his insurance company and, and uh, got a settlement on his truck. And now he just drives his truck around because he figures it's going to get golf ball size hail again. Eventually, that's what happens in the panhandle of Texas. And I, you remember that one, Becky? That, that, yeah, absolutely. And that night was kind of a scary night for us because uh, we were staying in the church. Uh, their, their house wasn't conducive to company. Uh, they lived in a small house at that time. And so we were staying in the church, and uh, there was no place to park my van, and the storm was coming in. And uh, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> I'm going to have golf ball-sized hail pockmarks all over my van. There was nothing I could do about it, though. It was just what was going to happen. But by God's grace, it didn't happen. It doesn't happen all the time. So that was good. It was a real fierce storm, uh, like you don't see around here. But it didn't cause us any damage like that. Well, in verse 21, these great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, that's kind of a transliteration, fell from heaven on people. And that'll do you in real fast. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. These were deadly bombs. This is not golf ball size, you know. That's massive. It just shows God's wrath, shows God's anger coming down like killing bombs. And the people, they said, oh, you know, Lord, save us from the... No, they didn't. They didn't repent. They continued on in their evil. They continued on uh, against God and their hatred for God. Uh, look at 16.9, uh, for instance. This is a different plague, you know. Um, in, in, we'll go back to verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11, uh, after the next one, the fifth angel pours out his bowl. They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Go back to chapter 9. We're going to take a, a walk now. There's a couple other scriptures, so you can just turn with me. Chapter 9, we see the same picture uh, in verse number 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And like we said when we went through that, kind of like reading the newspaper, isn't it, of today? Kind of like reading the newspaper of today. Okay, so now turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, we're going to do some extensive reading without much commentary in Exodus. And what I'm hoping to show you is the connection that there is between the temporal plagues on Egypt that were very destructive, but they weren't the final day. And they weren't even Egypt's final day. The temporal plagues and how that pictures the final day and the end of the world as we know it. Exodus chapter 9, and um, I'll tell you what, let's start reading in verse number 8, okay? Exodus chapter 9, verse 8, 
And um, we remember the boils that came on people in Revelation. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, just Egypt, and become boils breaking out on sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln, stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and they became boils breaking out on sores on man and beast. And the magicians, remember the magicians were, were uh, trying to copy some of these plagues and make the plagues happen and, and to copy. Well, this time uh, they weren't going to be copying this one. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. It's a bit of an aside, but... but um, Sometimes people say, well, God wouldn't do that. And then right here it says that God did do that. And so they say, well, God wouldn't do that until Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. And again, they're wrong. Because uh, with the burning bush, God told Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And he's not going to let you go. I mean, all you got to do is read the chronology of it. And then all of a sudden you see that this is what God is doing. And what the purpose of God was at that particular time. Now, uh, we continue on here. Verse 13 of, chapter, of Exodus 9. We're going to see in this local judgment again what we've already seen in Revelation. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to, uh, before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. It's God revealing himself by plagues here. For now, for by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. I could have destroyed you all. You all would be dead. But then that verse that's quoted in Romans 9 and Ken has taken us through Romans 9 uh, in the 10 o'clock study. But notice what it says, and Paul quotes this in Romans 9. But for this purpose, God says, I've raised you up to show you, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Okay. Verse 17. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I'll cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Okay, that, that takes us to, to 1621, we just read, which is like nothing that's ever happened on the earth before. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe, into safe shelter. For every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. That's how heavy the hail is going to be. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, 
The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire. I think you know that fire is lightning, right? Okay. The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. There was no judgment. I, you know, I wasn't there for the golf ball-sized hail, but I did see the thunder and the lightning, and it was pretty scary stuff. This isn't golf ball-sized hail that's falling in Egypt either. This is deadly hail, you know, very, very rare that that happens. Verse 27, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord is right. And I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I'll let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I've gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There'll be no more hail, so that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now there's a little insertion here. The flax and barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down for the late coming up. That's just a, a little insertion to let us know the plagues aren't over yet. Verse 33, So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And that's what we see taking place. Did, did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Absolutely. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yeah, absolutely. You know. Okay. With that being said and done, there's a New Testament passage I'd like to take us to. I, we, we have time to do this. Okay, I'm looking at the time. Hebrews chapter 12. The, Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a picture in a different way. Going back to Mount Sinai. Going back to what God did on the mountain. Two kingdoms. And really, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the New Covenant arises out of the Old. There was a remnant in the Old Covenant that believed in the Lord. In the New Covenant, uh, no longer is there a nation involved. There's a church involved, where everyone that's in the church, everyone that's a Christian, is part of the people of God. God's going to shake this present earth and God's going to shake the kingdom of this world and bring them to nothing. And at the giving of the law, it was a fearful display of this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. 
It's very possible. Uh, most most um, scholars do not believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. We're not told that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. It's my personal opinion for what it's worth. I, I think he's the author, or if he's not the author, he's the one that inspired it, one of his students or somebody that... Um, the, the Greek language doesn't appear to be Paul, so it could well be that one of Paul's students uh, wrote the book of Hebrews uh, very much with Paul's direction. So we, we don't know. We know it's the inspired word of God, though. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Talking to the church. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words uh, that made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Okay. But verse 22, that's the law at Sinai. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, we're obviously talking Revelation-type language here that uh, we see there. You know, these are the pictures that we see in Revelation. The heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable uh, number of angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What did the blood of Abel cry out? Cry out for vengeance. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cries out for peace for his people, you know. And because Hebrews, I believe, is a sermon, the sermon application comes next, you know. See, verse 25, that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook. I'm sorry, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, here's the conclusion. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, we're going to look at Revelation one more time those verses after we've done this background. Uh, and uh, we're going to see that powerful Babylon is split into three parts. The other cities fall into ruin. It's not the first time we've seen an earthquake as a sign of the end. Uh, look, look at Revelation 6 again. This time I'll read it to you. Revelation 6 should really be seen as contemporaneous with what we've just read in Revelation 16. Revelation 6, verse 12, the descriptive place there. When he opened the angel, the sixth seal, or, or I think it's Christ that opened that one. 
When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You know, this morning uh, you mentioned, Pastor Ken, uh, at the 10 o'clock hour, that nobody's going to stand before God and give excuses at the last day. And, and you're very right. No one's going to do that. What they're going to do, there's a number of things we're told in the Bible they're going to do. They're going to fall on their faces. Okay. Or they're going to cry out in such anguish that they would rather have a mountain fall on them so that they could be hidden from the sight of God himself because of the fear that they'll have. So nobody's going to be saying to God, God, why did you do this? This isn't fair. That, that's not going to happen at the last day. It's going to be more awesome than actually human words can put into uh, being. One more scripture, and then we'll conclude with 16 one more time. I'll, I'll just read it to you so you don't have to turn there. Haggai, chapter 2. Haggai comes in the midst of um, rebuilding the temple. The second temple is now being built. It's not nearly as glorious as the first. It's smaller. Uh, it's not as majestic. But it's the temple that God would have to be built. It would be the temple that that Herod would expand upon and make into a, a, a massive temple, you know, and it would be the temple that the Lord Jesus Christ would go into and call it his father's house. And it's the temple that the Lord Jesus Christ would tell us will be destroyed, and it was. Okay. Haggai 2, 5 through 7. Work. This is Haggai, the prophet Haggai encouraged him to finish the job. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, and get this, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Of course, Jesus Christ himself was the glory of that temple. As majestic as Herod built it up, it was God's plan. But it was also God's plan to tear it down uh, in a new covenant that would come to us. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Speaking about the temple of his own body, which is far more glorious uh, than the temple that uh, had been erected in Jerusalem. So now, with all that background, let's read one more time. Revelation 16, verse 17, to the end. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, 
And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there never has been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. And the city, now, but no, that's not all that happens. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. People can't hide on that last day. There can be no mountains to fall on them to, to keep them from the gaze of God. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. And then we'll go on next time, and we'll see how did we get here? How did this happen? You know, And we'll get a very good picture of that. Three things to close with. The day is coming, but it's not yet. Second of all, we're still in a day of God's common grace. It's still you know, touching the hearts of sinners, bringing sinners to glory, saving people, you know. But this destruction of everything that we see is inevitable. And then last of all, God spares for the sake of his elect so that not one will be lost. All will be gathered in. And he'll come in his time like a thief. Pastor Mike, if you'd come, please. <laughs>